Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we're sitting in our studio and we are surrounded by totes and boxes full of Christmas ornaments that I pulled out from under the stairs. We haven't put them up yet, but... Totes on, totes on, totes! We have lots of, lots of stuff with things in it. Yes. We have the tree up, but it's just a tree, and that's the only sign that uh, decorating has started to happen in the in the upstairs area. It actually looks a little strange. Oh, nope, there's just a tree in the dining room. A few years ago, I started a tradition where I wrote a note to us um, in the future. Like when we take the Christmas tree, uh, Christmas ornaments down, I would write a little note to us for next Christmas and stick it in the box mm-hmm. with, uh, the Christmas ornaments. And I did that, you know, for a few years, just like uh, here's what we hope happens this year. And then we could compare, but now I'm getting to an age where uh, the, the note that I wrote, I just opened up the, the Christmas tree topper where I put the note. It just said, Hey, you're still alive. Hey. So I feel good about that. Great job. Yeah. Great job. Once again, a reminder, uh, we're going to take a break Christmas week. That is uh, the week of the 23rd of December. We will return the following Monday. We're just going to take a couple of days off. Mostly it's to get prepared for our extended vacation in January. Um, I need some time just to get ready, uh, slash, freak out, and be excited. But in the meantime, you got a story for me. I just know it. And since you go first, I'm going to shut my face hole. Okay. You know that gaping wound in the front of my head where words pour out? You mean the most beautiful feature that's ever been on anyone's face ever? You're gross. (laughs) So uh, we got a message from Glark Cables on Instagram. (laughs) And this story 
piqued my interest. Oh, it did? Yes. So I had to look it up. And, um, well, here we go. Glark writes, Hey, guys, not sure if you can use this as a topic or not, but a few years ago, I worked at a Whole Foods in Michigan that got into national news. And uh, he goes on to explain why. Um, he included a link, or they included a link, and I went to that link, and I was delighted. I mean, it's terrible, but it's also interesting. Anyway, here we go. So many things that are interesting happen to be terrible. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. yeah. In 2017, a federal investigation was launched after a Whole Foods employee spotted a man near and about to the salad bar. Uh, You know where they have that massaged kale salad? Oh, that's so good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, everything's better after a massage. Why should kale be any different? (laughs) So anyway, this guy was tootling about the salad bar or the foods bar. I guess it's not just salad. There are also hot foods. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. The place where all the food is. Right. Mm -mm. So he is lingering it looks weird. It looks suspicious. And then the employee sees him uh, dumping some sort of liquid uh, into the foods. And so the employee is like, hey, now, not cool. He alerts the Whole Foods people. Right. And this man, who is described as a James Vanderbeek lookalike, <laughs> it ha- was captured on camera intentionally uh, putting some sort of liquid into the foods. Willie's very upset by this prospect. Of course. It turns out that the James Vanderbeek lookalike is actually 29-year-old Kyle Bessemer. And it was discovered James Vanderpoison had gone <laughs> to over a dozen stores in the state and uh, had been found to have been spraying a combination of hand sanitizer, water, and Tomcat rat poison on the foods. Oh, my God. So, yeah, rat poison's a big deal. Um, Don't know if you know this or not, but what rat poison does, it's an anticoagulant. So, basically, it just makes you bleed out. Your body can't coagulate anymore, and you just start leaking blood from all of your orifices. All? All! Of your orifices? Um, Which is not pleasant for man nor rodent. I don't like leaking blood from one of my orifices. Tell me about it. Yeah. Tell there me about it. Go weren't ahead. any uh, reports of illnesses stemming directly from the products that were thought to have been tainted by uh, Bessemer. But, uh, of course, Whole Foods and the other um, grocery stores that had found to be part of this did throw out all of the, the foods that were out in the hot foods and mm-hmm. salad bar sections. Right. Um, and they Whole Foods sent out a warning, you know, if you got anything from this salad bar uh, between this date and this date, please don't eat it, throw it away, blah, blah, blah. So Kyle Bessemer faced four counts of poisoning food, uh, which carries punishments of up to 20 years each. Wait a minute. Now, there were over a dozen stores he did this at, and he only got four counts? That's right. Why? Well, I don't know. It may have been because these were the only times that he was caught on camera, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe they figured... 
20 times 4 is 80. That's pretty much a life sentence. Why bother prosecuting him for oh. more? We just ha- It just takes more time to sort the evidence and present the case, and it's not going to make any difference. That's very possible. That's a well-thought-out theory, and I appreciate that about you. Anyway, who knows? Uh, so he was actually found not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh. Uh, the court discovered through the proceedings that he was going through a moment and he was concerned and uh, positive that someone was trying to poison him. So somehow his poisoning foods in a salad bar in grocery stores kept uh, him from being poisoned. Not okay. sure exactly okay. how that works, but... Did, did he have a history of mental illness? Um, it doesn't say that hmm. that's the case. It's, it was discovered through this. It does seem to be the case that hmm. he has dealt with this in the past. Okay. Um, so he was, as I said, found not guilty by reason of insanity um, and was committed to a the mental health system. So he's uh, getting the treatment that he needs. Wow, that's scary. It sure is. It reminds me of the story that, we, that I think we told this on an episode way, way, way back. Somebody we know that used to um, manage a pizza, a pizza hut restaurant. <laughs> And it was this, this one guy, it was like clockwork. This one guy would come. This is one of my favorite stories. This, this one dude would come running in the front door of the pizza hut, zoom by the salad bar, grab a fistful of lettuce, dunk it in the ranch dressing, and then bolt out the side entrance. And this happened every day. At the exact same time, until Josh, who who told us this story, um, decided that he was going to lock the side door. Yep. And so the guy comes running in, grabs his fistful of lettuce, dunks it into the ranch dressing, and then just like the coyote, kablam, into the door and knocked himself out. And there he laid in a pile of of uh, leaf and creamy, delicious dressing. <laughs> Yeah, there was something going on there, too. Yeah. Not sure what, but um, great great problem-solving Josh. Yeah, right. Well done. He's a smart guy. And Plus, that must have been incredibly amusing for the regular diners that saw that every day. <laughs> I wonder if he passed out, like, flyers to the regular diner. You might want to be here uh, on Friday <laughs> because here's what's going to happen. I think probably if you were a regular diner at that particular Pizza Hut, you would not frequent the salad bar. <laughs> Um, So in uh, Germany, they have a tradition of uh, decorating at Easter their front yards, and they will oftentimes put out not just regular decorations like we would expect to see in the front yard, but also sweets. Hmm. Now, there was a particular resident in a particular neighborhood who was becoming very frustrated by the fact that the neighborhood children were helping themselves to his yard sweets. Well, what do you put them out there for? They're, nope, they're just for decoration. They're just it's for decoration. It's part of the... It's not like an offering or anything. No. It's... Uh, okay. No. Hmm. So, uh, he... This guy, George Lube was 68 years old. He'd had enough of those little geezers. Uh, and so he sprayed the sweets with ammonium hydroxide and then repackaged them in their original foil and then hung from hung them from the tree in his front yard. Oh. Here, kitties, enjoy this deliciousness. So 
A boy named Max actually uh, snagged one of those, became very ill, and had to have his stomach pumped after uh, stealing and eating a bunny on his way to school. Um, The Easter-themed objects became a real problem uh, because, they I mean, they were poisoned. Lube was admitted to the fact that he had sprayed all of the chocolates with this mixture of ammonia and something else. And he said, well, the ammonia smell should have warned the kids not to eat it in the first place. Of course. He said that he objected to being a, quote, meal ticket for all the local brats. He could have hung something other than candy and just wrapped it and made it look like candy. So it was obvious. Uh, you open it up and it's like an air pressure uh, tire gauge. Yes. Kids aren't going to eat that. Allegedly. Probably not. Probably not. So uh, a couple of other kids had to be checked out after uh, snagging the the tainted treats. He was charged with causing grievi- grievous bodily harm. Um, and his tree was stripped of the hazardous uh, <laughs> treats. In this story, you've said the words stripped, lube, and taint. Sorry about that. It's Easter. I get in the, sure, right. the I understand. celebratory of course. mood. <laughs> All of your holiday mirth making. Let's talk about the Chilean grape scare. It's 1989. And, uh, Do you need some dramatic music for this? Yes, please. Oh, God. Can you do dramatic music with that? It's 1989. Chili. I'm finding that very distracting. Um, anonymous phone call was made to the U.S. Embassy in Santiago. And the word was that grapes had been tainted with cyanide that they were coming in from Chile. It wasn't known who called this threat in, or I guess it was a tip. Maybe it was a threat. What's the difference, really? What's the difference if it's just the tip? So the the individual who supposedly telephoned the U.S. Embassy uh, told them that some Chilean grapes had been contaminated with cyanide. And so, obviously, grapes coming into the States were being checked. It was released that two grapes were found to contain cyanide. Now, no individual or group ever claimed responsibility for the poisonings. And since just two grapes were said to have been injected with cyanide, it was it was a really interesting situation. Hmm. Table grapes are the leading import or export of Chile. So there was some hubbub that possibly this was some sort of anti-Chile uh, scheme. During the time that this whole situation was going on, thousands of farm workers lost their jobs, and the government was forced to provide temporary subsidies to offset more than $400 million in losses because of a single phone call and two tainted grapes. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So here's some interesting uh, factoids about grapes and cyanide. Once you puncture a grape, it will decompose very, very quickly. And generally, the travel time 
from Santiago grape fields to, let's say, Philadelphia is like two weeks. So it's very unlikely that two delicious-looking grapes that had been tainted in Santiago would have made their way to any sort of uh, United States city and still looked edible. Okay, so they are assuming that the cyanide was injected into the grape, puncturing the grape skin. Correct. All right. So at this point, it's very suspicious, and some are considering that maybe the two grapes were actually not poisoned, but were the result of poor laboratory process. And uh, since the investigation was inconclusive, some of the people involved believe that this was actually the work of a local Marxist extremists, and that the whole thing had been set up as some sort of aggression towards Chile. And it was just an effort to... It's always the local Marxist extremists. Also... I don't like grape skin. It yeah. makes that sound on the side of my teeth, and I, I don't that. care for it. I know. You've mentioned that a number of times. I remember I worked in a haunted house when I was a teenager, and we used to uh, peel the grapes and then make people stick their hand in a bucket full of peeled grapes with a blindfold on. Mm-hmm. Told them that it was eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. My uh, first boyfriend used to peel grapes for me and I'd just have a bowl of peeled grapes for me because I did not like the skins. So I'm just saying, Forget I haven't it. had I'm any not gonna peel any peeled grape. grapes lately. <laughs> Won't you call your first boyfriend? <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, if you really, if you really care about someone, you'll peel a bunch of grapes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, food poisoning. Yay! That's what I have for you today. And now that thing in the middle. I just love that we have started this Freaks a Box of Oddities group on Facebook because people are now giving us great ideas for things in the middle. It's so much less work that we have to do. Allie Kidney writes, by the way, she just received her rising star status on the Freak page. Well done. Figure this would be a good conversation starter. What's the most useless thing you still have memorized? She said, for me, it only takes seven pounds of pressure to rip off a human ear. Also, is that true? Chloroform smells like celery. I did not know that that was tr- a thing. Number five, Danielle writes, all the words to we didn't start the fire. All of them? How? I decided one night when I was a teenager to memorize it. That's pretty impressive. I usually get the first like three of every sentence out, like. Harry Connick, Doris Day. Yeah, then it just becomes. Yeah. Like that. Einstein, James Dean. Number four, the Glade commercial song from the 80s. How'd you get them flowers in there? Yeah. That's going to be stuck in my head all day. Number three, Don writes, whale vomit is worth more than gold. Whale vomit? That's what she says. All right. Number two, the plural of cul-de-sac is cul-de-sac. Well, of course. That's one of my favorites. It's like heads of state. Or things in the middle, as opposed to thing in the middles. Correct. And number one, Beth writes, Camel's ability to conserve water is so efficient that their urine is as thick as syrup when they pee. Really? But 
Don't say anything about putting it on pancakes. Honest to God, I can see it in your face right now. <laughs> okay, all right. These waffles taste awful. <laughs> Damn it. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. Hey, freaks, we want to thank you so much for the tremendous support that we've had this year from you, the freak community. As a special treat, we want to announce a a little giveaway we have toward the close of the year. From now until December 20th, if you follow our show on the Himalaya app and share the show with your friends, you'll be entered in a drawing to win some really cool prizes. For example, brand new ear pods. We're also doing a group giveaway with some of our awesome true crime creators listed in the episode notes. 
If you follow and share at least one of the other participating shows, you're entered to win a stay at the Stanley Hotel. That's where Stephen King wrote The Shining. Expenses will be paid by Himalaya. Download the Himalaya app, look up the Box of Oddities, follow and share to win. You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? Got this email from Dustin. Uh, He says, I am an atheist. I don't believe in the paranormal paranormal spirits aren't real angels demons and ghosts aren't real aliens bigfoot in my humble opinion are all stuff that has a scientific logical explanation even if it has not been discovered yet keeping that in mind and then he shares this story and i'm going to paraphrase here because he uh it's a pretty long story and it's beautifully written but um for time purposes i've edited the edited the content okay He had some health issues when he hit about 35 years of age. He had monthly seizures, migraines. He was admitted to the hospital on one particular occasion. Uh, One night while he was there, the chaplain stopped by. He was making his rounds, and he asked if he could sit with with Dustin for a while. Dustin said, it was a Catholic hospital, and I said, yes, I'm an atheist, but I'm not a jerk. Um, (laughs) I was actually happy to have some company. So this priest, he he said, I'm going to quote from the email now, the priest was a kindly older black gentleman with dreads to his shoulders. He was in the traditional Catholic priest garb with the black coat and the white square on the collar. He had a maroon Bible in his right hand and a rosary wrapped around his left. He sat with me for three or four hours from about 11 p.m. to something like 3 a.m. in the morning. We talked about everything from our favorite dogs to medical issues to God and anything else that that might come up. He even prayed for me just before he left. I really enjoyed his company. The next morning, I asked the nurse what uh, the chaplain's name was. I wanted to thank him for being so generous with his time and sitting with me. And comforting me for so long as he did, the nurse wanted to know which chaplain had come to see me. He said, I described him in his 70s, African-American dreads, etc. The more I described him, the more confused the nurse got. She said, we've never had anybody here like that. She and I went back and forth for a while trying to figure it out. Eventually, she started asking all the other nurses on the floor. She called the chapel to see if maybe there was a temporary priest from another church or hospital working that night. No Mm -hmm. one had a clue who I was talking about. So now their concern is I'm hallucinating or vividly dreaming from because of the concussion that I had. The doctor couldn't explain it. The nurses were baffled. Eventually, um, I wrote it off as a vivid concussion dream and never mentioned it to anybody in my family. I only talked about it with the hospital staff. Months later, I'm out of the hospital. I'm driving in my dad's truck with him on a long ride from South Florida to Jacksonville late at night. My uncle, his brother, had just passed away. So we're reminiscing, and my dad is telling me stories about their childhood. He told me about how they'd go hunting and where they lived in Virginia. Eventually, he tells me about this story. He and my uncle were on one of their hunting trips. My dad ends up slipping and falling down the side of a mountain. He hits his head on a boulder and chips his skull. My uncle got him up. And back home, and my grandpa took him to the hospital. My dad starts the story by saying, Now, I know you don't believe in God and all, but I'm going to tell you this story anyway. You might think I'm crazy. So I listened to my dad tell me about one night he was at the hospital and an old, black, dreadlocked priest came in and sat and talked to him for several hours. My dad is telling me this and describing the uh, priest. My heart starts to skip a few beats. My dad said he woke up the next morning And my grandma had spent the entire night in the hospital room with him. So he asked her when he woke up, Mom, who was that nice man that sat and talked with me? 
when you walked out of the room last night. My grandma was confused, saying she had never left and no one else visited all night long. Wow. The longer my dad talked about this experience and talked about this kindly old priest, the more emotional I got. He finally looks up from the road and glances at me and notices that I'm actually tearing up as he's telling the story. I then said, I believe you, but you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. He summarizes his uh, experience by saying, even though he, he considers himself an ace atheist, maybe there really is something to higher dimensions, spirit worlds, angels, or whatever label we put on it. I'm a lot more open-minded about it now. I can understand. <laughs> Dustin, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. It's awesome. Let's talk about landfills. Okay. Some of the largest, most widely spread, and most toxic landfills. Well, I'm guessing the ocean is becoming one of them at this point. That's true. But I'm talking about cemeteries and graveyards. Oh! Yeah. Human disposal landfills. It's worse than you ever could imagine. I don't know. And you can imagine it pretty bad, I'm sure. Cemeteries can be regarded as special kinds of landfills. The World Health Organization wrote this in a 1998 report. And like any landfill... They come with pollution risks. Of course. There haven't been many com uh, comprehensive studies on the environmental risks, but in the case of, say, um, a cemetery that keeps flooding, mm -hmm. the chances of serious contamination are pretty high. Well, yeah. Now, this is according to an article I found in Obscura. Now, when you also consider that over the centuries, some cemeteries have been converted into playgrounds mm. and parks and housing developments. Yep or surrounded by dense development, environmental scientists are trying to understand the complete picture of all the hidden dangers in cemetery and burial grounds. And we've only, if you'll pardon the expression, scratched the surface. So that's an internment joke. Yeah. So it's true, we've been burying people for thousands of years in large groups in concentrated areas, and we've managed to, uh, to get by so far. But now, with the world's population explosion, things are getting pretty serious, and science is taking a good, long, hard look at, uh, at the problem. I imagine the way that we bury them and how that's changed over the years is a, is a big part of that. I would think also that a thousand years ago, probably the bodies weren't soaked in as much toxin as, exactly. as we are nowadays yeah i mean the the toxin that we take in during our lifetime and then what we do to our bodies after we're we're kicking it yeah you know yeah. jamming jamming us full of chemicals uh, chemicals and, and yep yeah uh, fluids to keep us fresh even though we're buried it don't make no sense there's a uh, a central cemetery in moreau a small city in south uh, southern brazil there are a uh, small above-ground tombs and mausoleums in this particular cemetery. And they're so crowded together that there is little room to walk between them on these very narrow, narrow cobblestone walks. The cemetery looks clean and it looks well-kept, but just a couple of years ago, a team of researchers went there. They were visiting to do some studies on exactly what we were talking about, how toxins are leaching into the soil. And they noticed a crack in a wall of one of the tombs. And inside was a relatively new corpse. And it was leaking mm, right, they do. right out onto the cobblestone walkway. Sure. 
Sure. Let's talk about what was leaking. I have an idea. A human body is made mostly of water. We know that. Also carbon, salt. It contains calcium, potassium, iron, and other familiar compounds. Actually sounds like the back of a vitamin bottle. So when a person dies and their body starts to decompose, it transforms into a gooey, salty liquid Mm. known as necrolechate. It's made up of about three-fifths water, two-fifths salt, and organic compounds. Every 15 to 16 pounds of body weight produces about a gallon of leachate. Oh, wow. Which has a very distinct fishy smell. Let's say uh, a person weighs 200 pounds. Okay. 200. I got my calculator out. Divide that by 16. Mm-hmm. That should be a little over, what, 13? It's 12.5. So a 200-pound person, when they die, will produce over 12 gallons of salty, gelatinous, fish-smelling body soup. Mm-hmm. So in cemeteries, this salty, gelatinous, fish-smelling body soup seeps into the ground. And especially if the soil happens to be gravelly or sandy, it can mix with the groundwater of course. below. So in Brazil, like in this cemetery, it's, it's hot and it's humid and it rains a lot. So the risk of this happening is particularly high. Alcindo Neckel, the Brazilian geographer who led the study of this particular uh, cemetery, said, quote, I consider cemeteries one of the biggest contamination problems. In cemeteries that are exposed to frequent flooding, the risk of contamination is off the charts. And you remember, you remember hearing stories of coffins just popping up to the surface during floods like down in louisiana in fact according to the independent after flooding in 2016 in louisiana emergency workers and residents uh were being confronted by a challenge that they uh they weren't expecting that was the disquieting sight of coffins just bobbing on the water floating down the street and not just one or two but hundreds of them and it's not the first time that severe flooding in Louisiana has resulted in this type of thing. When Hurricane Katrina struck in 2005, so many coffins were loosened and left floating in the parts of, uh, of New Orleans that it was just overwhelming. In a 2006 New York Times article, they said, the force of the storm literally raised the dead from their resting places in peaceful parish cemeteries, sending nearly a thousand coffins and vaults floating across the Gulf Coast and creating a macabre puzzle uh, for Louisiana coroners and morticians. Storm surges as high as 20 feet transformed two-ton concrete vaults and marble coffins into virtual ships that traveled for miles across parish lines, landing in front yards. Uh, <clears throat> that song from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks just popped into my head. Bobbing along, bobbing <laughs> along on the bottom of the beautiful briny sea. In a barnacle encrusted vault from 1957. Inappropriate. Okay, go ahead. Coffin showed up on the lawn of Dr. Brian Bertucci, a coroner, St. Bernard Parish. Later, a parish resident informed Dr. Bertucci that he found the remains of his grandmother still wearing her pink gown out of her grave oh. in the local cemeteries. Oh, that's rough. And I, because of that, uh, that particular situation, you know, Hurricane Katrina was so devastating and so much chaos. I imagine that there were a lot of unrecovered yeah. family members, which is terrible and now makes my Bedknobs and Broomsticks song seem even more inappropriate. I do apologize. 
But in any place where you bury bodies, the soil is going to be different from the surrounding land, obviously. And uh, those underground contaminants can last for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years in some cases. Researchers even have a name for cemetery soil. Necrosols. And according to them, necrosols carry higher concentrations of nutrients than surrounding areas. But far more alarming are the microbes within the soil microbes microbes back in the 19th century there were a lot of documented cases of cemeteries uh, contaminating urban water supplies Mm. cholera often seeped from dead bodies into drinking water in berlin in the 1960s i mean sorry 1860s people who lived near cemeteries were at a much higher risk of contracting typhoid if you look at the areas where people uh, suffered from typhoid or died from from typhoid fever in paris they're all concentrated around a well near cemeteries the water near cemeteries were actually favored because the water tasted sweet Gross. Although it smelled fishy. Now, <clears throat> ew. And also, um, who who knew that those microbes could last that long? That could affect people Ooh. that much. We are we are getting to that. Oh, okay, okay. You're right on the nose with that. I didn't know. But there's so much more, uh, especially in the modern cemeteries. Modern cemeteries are full of all sorts of potential contaminants. Steel caskets have become very popular. In an article in Modern Farmer, which uh, was about graveyard soil, they noted that every year in the United States, more than 100,000 tons of steel are buried in cemeteries. That's enough to rebuild the Golden Gate Bridge every year. Along with steel, of course, wood preservatives, paints, medical devices with radioactive components, Zinc, silver, bronze, hip replacements, breast implants, and all the other trappings of modern human life that we take to the grave with us nowadays. So when you have, when you're prepared for burial, those things aren't taken out? Apparently not. Oh. Not to mention, of course, as you mentioned earlier, embalming fluids, which also include arsenic. Those gradually mix into the dirt. Fortunately, they don't use arsenic anymore. They used that back in the Civil War times when embalming first started to become more widespread. Nowadays, we use um, formaldehyde. Unfortunately, that's a carcinogen, so not such a great uh, substitute. Corpses secrete toxic compounds called putrescine and cadaverine, which are responsible for, you know, the smell of decomp. Yeah. In addition, cemeteries are beautifully and heavily landscaped, which means lots of fertilizer, Mm. lots of pesticides. There's varnish from from the old coffins, clothing that people are buried in, makeup on their faces. It's all filled with compounds that when you get enough concentration of that heavily in one place can become a serious hazard just on its own. Of course. And it is true that human bodies decompose in about a decade, but some of these pollutants hang around for much, much longer. Traces of metals, for instance, can last for many, many years. Mathis Dippenair, a hydrogeologist at the University of Pretoria, has been leading a project on the environmental hazards of cemeteries. They say the concentration dilutes over time, but it never disappears. The way cemeteries are designed also adds to the problem because when you get graves that are all 
you know, dug and stuck together close by in a, an attractive geographical pattern. It acts as a sieve and it allows rain and surface water to filter directly through the highest concentrations of contaminants and leach into the groundwater, again, contaminating drinking water. Well, that makes sense. And because of the rows that they are buried in, um, there's going to be like funneling mm-hmm. that would happen. Uh, that makes perfect sense. That's right. And it's creepy. I I mean, I'm sure there are religious reasons for burying people in mm-hmm. that traditional coffin style. Facing the east. Mm. Um, but there's got to be a better way. Suggestions, go. I have some. Good. At the end of this story. Okay. Microbiologist Eunice Ubamba Jaswa. I love the name Eunice. She's a water resources uh, quality manager at the South African Water Research Commission. And she said, historically, people have assumed if you put formaldehyde in the body, then you know the pathogens would die off, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. But studies have found all sorts of microbes thriving in cemetery soil. For example, E. coli, salmonella. Oh, yeah. You gotta wash those corpses before you put them in your stir fry. What now? B. anthracis, which by its name suggests that it carries anthrax. In laboratory simula- uh, simulations of uh, cemetery conditions, she was shocked to find that E. coli survived the biocide that was supposed to kill them off. Mm. In one study, her team found E. coli. But it was a more dangerous drug-resistant strain. Oh, sure, because of all the poisons it's yep. building up. It's oh, it's yep. becoming like a super bug. G. coli. I don't know what's what's bigger than E. F. F. coli. Sure. Just work our way toward the end of the alphabet. Yeah. Oh, by the time Z. Z. coli. That sounds like a zombie movie. It doesn't sure it? does. Now, before we panic, it's important to remember. Uh, that in most cases, there's no immediate danger. But this research does indicate that cemeteries can be reservoirs for many things that we don't want to live around. And the problem could get much worse in the case of a serious disease outbreak. If we had, like, let's say another 1918 influenza epidemic, Mm -hmm. the infectious agents would simply cycle through the cemeteries and back into the living population because of the way that we've designed cemeteries and Mm -hmm. because of the size of them and the population growth. The researchers I mentioned in this uh, story that that have studied this issue um, have come to the conclusion that burial is simply an unsustainable way to deal with dead bodies in the long term. Now, we don't really know what the best alternative is for an environmentally conscious death. Acid bath. That is one. Cremation, well, that also has its own environmental impact. Sure. But there are plenty of ideas floating around from vertical cemeteries. Placing them in a different position would at least take up less ground and and the footprint would be smaller. Yeah. That feels real half-assed to me. Freeze-drying a body and then Busting it up to dust. Ooh, that's, that's kinda, interesting. That's kind of cool. I like that. And then mushroom death suits. Yuck. What? Yuck. No. What? No, I don't even talk about that. According nope. to no. Science Alert, she's plugging her ears. No, because remember that show? Uh, and then there was that mushroom thing. I hated it. Well, I've got to tell the story. All right, fine. The mushroom death suit is an idea that mushrooms will begin to grow from your body once yeah. you're buried, slowly digesting you 
while neutralizing any environmental contaminants that you harbor, such as pesticides, heavy metals, and preservatives in the process. It is available. It costs about $999. Oh, it's affordable. And now they've made them for pets as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So whether you elect for a mushroom death suit or not, one thing's very clear. With our continuing population growth, we need to start looking at how to deal with dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah, the mushroom death suit freaks me out, too. It it kind of triggers that tripophobia thing in me for some reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's... Well, I, get, I get the same feeling. I don't yeah. know if it's actually tripophobia, but it's the same kind of... Uh, well, you know how I, I used to have nightmares about... Um, pickles or cucumbers getting stuck to my body oh yeah, yeah it's the yeah. same feeling yeah okay it's i get that yeah okay. it's that same kind of like uh, yeah. like something having to be scraped off of me yeah. you know uh, no yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah 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 no i, I get like that, that. And, and it's easy for people to make fun of that sort of thing that if they don't understand i understand sweetie. i know you do i, I understand i appreciate you i appreciate you um i like the idea of being jammed into a pod and a tree growing out of me Will That's that different. neutralize the toxins, though? I am toxinless. All these tattoos are vegan. <laughs> you have ve- vegan tattoos. There's a great marketing angle. I love it. Anyhoozle, that's what we have for you today. Our live show, January 29th, Washington, D.C. You can get tickets at our website as well as tickets for our uh, February 29th show which is in Bridgeport, Connecticut, at the historic Bijou Theater, theboxofoddities.com. Also, uh, wanted to real quick mention, we are hitting up some live shows ourselves. Uh, we've got tickets to go see Jim Harold's Campfire live at Zany's in Nashville. That show is March 24th. Uh, if you are interested in joining us for an amazing live show, super jazzed about that. Also, we just got our pre-sale tickets for and that's why we drink at Port City Music Hall in Portland. That's the twenty seventh of February. It's right before our live show, two days before our live show in Bridgeport. So we're going to go down to uh, the Portland show to see, and that's why we drink, and then <laughs> drive down to Connecticut and do our own damn show. Yeah. So yeah, just some if you're if you're just interested in hitting up some some live shows with us, that would be fun too. Yeah, it would. Anyway. Thanks for hanging out with us. We look forward to it every time, and we'll see you in just a couple of days. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.